0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. The Bible says that God's Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and gets into the soul and the spirit can tell the difference between the two. It also says that it is complete, that we don't need anything else but God's Word. It is all-sufficient for life in godliness. So we want to take time to find out what the Bible has to say about different issues. If you're joining us for the first time here today, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, you can write out the word question or put a Q in front of your question, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then put the reference there. We would love to be able to look them up. Our first question comes from our study last weekend where we talked actually last Wednesday night, where we talked about the book of Revelation verses 4 through 8, I think. So we had five verses there that we covered. And it talked about the seven spirits of God. And I gave two different ideas as to who they could be. They could be seven angels that stand in the presence of God. Some believe that Gabriel was one of those angels because Gabriel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. But I don't believe that's who these seven spirits are. Then some believe the number seven is completeness, and so it speaks of the Holy Spirit. We also see them later on in the book of Revelation. It, we see them that, that the, the lamb or that the uh, that Christ himself, who is talking to the churches, holds the seven spirits. And we also see that the lamb has seven horns, which speak of his all power, his power being all powerful. And he's got seven so that says the seven spirits that are his eyes. And that would speak of his omniscience i believe that the word seven there speaks of the holy spirit the completeness of the holy spirit and we talked in the service about isaiah given the seven different areas of the holy spirit now there's another suggestion and someone reminded it of me afterwards and that is could this be the divine council could these seven spirits represent the complete divine council now let me give you the idea of a divine council it's believed by some that God, as he gave dominion to Adam and Eve to rule over the earth, when God created the heavens, he also wanted the celestial beings to help him rule over the celestial kingdom. And so he gave authority to angels and spirits. And the Bible in a couple of places refers to the spirit of, of, of Samuel as Elohim and refers to spirits as Elohim. Elohim is the name or the word for God, El meaning God, Im is in the plural or meaning significant. The Bible says in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And so those who would believe in a divine counsel would say that what that is saying is that in the beginning, a spiritual being created the heavens and the earth, and then we learn who that spiritual being is. Let me give you a couple of verses to talk about that are used to talk about this heavenly council that may be helpful. And uh, this is, where are we at here? There we go. All right. So um, first of all, we have Psalms uh, 85, 5 through 7. And I have this in the NIV instead of the New King James because the New King James doesn't make what's being said as clear. It says, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness to in the assembly of the holy ones, for who is in the skies above can compare with the Lord, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings. In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Now, this is an example of several places that the heavenly council or the group of heavenly beings, there's different names that they're used in different uh, in different versions of the Bible. This would be an example of that. Another passage that they use to talk about it is just the beginning of Psalms 89, where it says, God stands in the congregation. Yeah, God stands in the congregation. It's not the beginning of 82, the beginning of 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And so the word there is Elohim. And so this is thought to be a picture of the gods. However, when you keep reading, or a picture of the heavenly spirits referred to as Elohims. However, when you keep reading, it goes on to say, and oftentimes they stop in verse 1, how long will you judge unjustly? So he says to these Elohim, how long will you judge unjustly? Stop and think about it, Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Flee from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, that's Elohim, that's Jehovah, Our our Yahweh, of the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. It looks like he's talking to judges on the earth who sit in the place of God when he's talking about this. This idea of the heavenly council seems to be nebulous. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about it. In First Kings chapter 22, there's a council of heavenly beings, spirits, who are deciding the fate of King Ahab. And then you've got in Job one, verse six, the angels that present themselves before God, but we're never told that that's a biblical, that that's a, that a council. So I do believe that God did want to share authority with heavenly beings and that he rules with them. It seems like the Bible does talk about that, but I think it's pushed to be this heavenly council that maybe is more nebulous than they would like you to think it is. And so they use some other passages to try to back it up. like. Genesis one twenty five and 26, that says, let us make man in our own image, or God going down to the Tower of Babel. Let us go down and see what man has done. As if this is God speaking to the heavenly council about where they would go. But those passage, passages have traditionally been thought to be the complexity of God. It, it can't be a heavenly council in Genesis chapter one, because it says, let us make man in our own image. So they're saying, that let's make man like Elohim but then it says so he created them male and female so the one speaking let us make man in our own image he created the male and female that's the complexity of god who's the us who's the are that's the 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 godhead the divinity of the godhead and is not a divine council and also the seven spirits before the throne of god it's kind of a it's kind of a push at that point to call them the divine council, because we're not told what they do. We're told that they are the eyes of God throughout the world. But we also know that you can't go anywhere to hide from the presence of God. And you know that his spirit is everywhere. And so it seems that the seven spirits would best be referenced as the Holy Spirit. Is there a possibility that that could be wrong? Sure, that's why scholars disagree. Maybe it's the seven angels, uh, seven angels before the throne of God. Um, And maybe it's this divine council. But this divine council is not really clear. Now, Dr. Heiser talks about it. The Bible Project, Tim Mackey, talk about the divine council. There are others that I've heard teach it as if it's just a fact and they teach it more solid than what it really is. And what I can tell you about Dr. Heiser, who really probably does the most work on this issue of the of the Divine Council, is that he is not saying that there are other gods beside God. Some have said that Dr. Heiser, Heiser supports Mormonism because he teaches that there are other gods. That's just misrepresenting his teaching completely. The Mormons believe that you progress to Godhood and that Elohim was a man on another planet and he progressed to Godhead, finally got married, had several wives and had spirit babies by them. And the, the mother of Jesus was also the mother of Satan and they, they progressed to Godhood or Jesus did and Satan progressed as well, maybe not completely to Godhead. Um, but what Mormonism teaches about about multiple gods is not what Dr. Heiser is teaching, and it really is a a maligning of him to make that statement. He's on much more solid ground as to whether or not there is a divine council. I just don't think it's as clear as they often would like to make it. And um, I've spent some time really looking into this to see whether or not there is this divine council. So could the seven spirits before the throne of God in Revelation be the divine council? Maybe, we're not told the identity but probably not. We would probably have some more information. I don't know how they would fit into later on when it talks about Jesus, the, the seven spirits being his eyes. And we know that there isn't any place that you can go to hide from the spirit of God. And so that's the connection there. That's the best connection to make, I think, according to the scriptures. So good to have you guys here with us today. This is our uh, Wednesday edition of Truth Quest podcast. Uh, this is our Q&A. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcast at. Uh, just search for Truth Quest, Truth Quest podcast with Robert Furrow. You're gonna get our full length teachings. We're in the book of Revelation now on Wednesday night and we're in the book of Luke near the end of it. Tonight we'll be talking about Judas and um, what it was about him that allowed him to do what he did, this horrible betrayal and lack of loyalty towards Jesus. And we want to evaluate our lives and see if we have anything going on that could be like Judas. You would get that in the podcast as well, plus our Hot Topics, which are shorter videos. They're a little bit more punchier on um, topics that there there seems to be some questions about. All right, so um, yeah, we have our first question here from Andre. Andre has first again, uh, like he does so often, Andre, good to see you. Andre says, question, is it wrong for believers to belong to organizations such as the Eastern Star and Freemasons? I'm not familiar with the Eastern Stars. Uh, I don't know whether or not they are a secret organization like the Freemasons. Um, I'm going to, is it wrong? I, I know a lot of the a lot of the our founding fathers in the United States were Freemasons. And um, I know a lot of people throughout history that of, of importance were Freemasons. I also know that Freemasonry is dying. Uh, I think as Christians, I'm just gonna tell you what I think. I'm just gonna give you my opinion. Um, I, I th- I don't think we should be involved in secret societies. I just don't think that we should. And I think I could make a biblical case if I take enough time. And remember, we want to look at questions through the lens of scripture. So I really would like to be able to, I'm just kind of drawing a blank now. Um, I think that there's a problem with the secrecy and we don't know really what's going on. And so because we really don't know what's going on and there's a problem with the secrecy and there seems to be these stories about what's taking place, it would be better for Christians to stay away from it. Um, and um, I'll, I'll probably return to this here in a few minutes uh, as I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of verses and I just need a little bit more clarity. Remember, sometimes you're answering questions cold. And even though I've I've looked into Freemasonry and I will look into um, Eastern Eastern Stars. In fact, I'd like to just take a moment here to pull them up really quick. Um, stars. I'm gonna say Secret Society. All right. Um, the Order of the Eastern Stars is a Masonic adapted body open to both men and women. It was established in 1850 by a lawyer, Rob Morris. Um, a noted Freemason. So it seems to be something that was connected to or like Freemasons that men and women can be involved in because only men can be involved in Freemasons. So I'm going to say, I'm just going to say I don't think it's a good thing for us as Christians to be involved in these secret societies. I think there's too many problems with it. We are the body of Christ. And that is where we should find our fellowship and our unity within the body of Christ and not in um, these secret societies. And I will in the future give you a more biblical answer to that. I'm just drawing a blank. I know there are a couple of verses that really help us to understand that we shouldn't be involved in these kind of secret things, um, but I'm just drawing a blank as to what those are now. Sorry about that. All right, so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, follow up on time. If there is no time in heaven, do babies when they die grow up in heaven or are they automatically grown as is their time in hell torment day and night. All right, so first of all, I believe that, that babies, when they die, go into the presence of God. I believe this for miscarried babies. And I believe that when a pregnancy is stopped uh, on purpose, I believe that those children are in the presence of God. Uh, I, I think that when they're in the presence of God, they are in their adulthood. We don't have anything in the Bible that would suggest that we, there would be growing up in heaven, maturing in heaven. Um, the question could be asked when you die and you're 80 years old, and you go to heaven, do you have an 80-year-old body? Uh, remember, when you get to heaven, you're a spirit. Your body stays here, and then your body is regenerated. I can't imagine God regenerating our bodies to look like it looked on the day we died. What if you're missing an arm or leg or legs. The Bible says there's no lame in heaven. So their legs have been regenerated. So I would say that, that babies will be adults when they get to heaven. And whatever kind of illness that we would have or mental deficiencies there would be, those will not be there in heaven. Um, Hell is another issue. So when someone dies, there's a spirit. And do they get a body that is made for them to be able to torment? Or is it hyperbole that there is screaming and gnashing of teeth? Meaning they're in torment. They're certainly in torment. But and it talks about being beaten with few stripes or beaten with many stripes. There is a resurrection from the dead called the second resurrection at the end of the book of Revelation. And then there's a judgment and then they're punished. So that we have to distinguish between that and what's taking place right now. If there's a holding place right now, like if, if, if when Jesus was talking about in Luke, I think it's 16, the comfort of Abraham for the poor man and the rich man being in torment, if that was a real place, then it would seem that there's some kind of a partial body that they would have what would it matter what that partial body would look like in the separation from God for all of eternity? And remember, Jesus also talked about some being beaten with few and some being beaten with many. Again, was that hyperbole? Was he talking about after the resurrection of the second the second death, after the tribulation period, before the white, great white judgment throne of God? And um, that's why when people bring up hell, I always say it's a complicated topic because there's all these words in the Old Testament, Sheol, tartarus in the new testament um gehenna which is a valley outside of jerusalem that are referred to as hell There, jesus referred to it as a place that you go when you die and so there's something about that valley that is like hell so it's more complicated um and hell is, seems to be the lake of fire and the bible just translates one word for hell all the way through and doesn't make a distinction uh, the translations of the bible translate the words that are in it as hell instead of trying to be a little more nuanced and so i really think there's some work that needs to be done about hell there jari um, but as far as heaven goes i i think remember if, if your spirit when you go to heaven angels are spirits and angels can manifest themselves in a body some have entertained angels unaware so can these spirits in heaven people can we when we die manifest a body up in heaven. It seems that during the tribulation period, the ones who are beheaded or martyred cannot because they stay under the altar of God, it would seem. So maybe there needs to be a little bit more of a dive in, really looking at those passages to really help us to understand some more of those things, Jari. All right, so thank you very much, I appreciate that. We have a question from Debbie. Debbie says, uh thank you pastor robert thank you i appreciate that could you explain more about the unforgivable and sin blasphemy of the holy spirit sure thank you so jesus talked about the blasphemy of the holy spirit when he was confronting the scribes and the pharisees they had rejected him and rejected him and rejected him although they knew the most that anyone should know about jesus being the messiah and then when jesus did a miracle They said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And Jesus said, any word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He didn't say any word spoken against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I want to bring that up because I want to put people at ease when they think, you know, once, once you tell someone, if you, if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, it's unforgivable then people in their mind will say something against the Holy Spirit and then think I've done the unforgivable sin. I think this is just the way Satan works. And so it's the blasphemy of the spirit that is unforgivable, not speaking a word against him. Speaking a word against the son of man is unforgivable, but the but the unforgivable aspect is when you know the truth, when you sit in a position of great knowledge and you reject the Lord and you reject him and you reject him and there comes a point where now you've gone too far. Where is that point? We don't know. We know that Jesus started talking in parables because he didn't want them to believe. He started hiding the truth from those who were in public because they had crossed that line of that unforgivable sin. And remember, when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at the Father. He's revealing the Father to us. And so there comes a point where someone who has a lot of knowledge can reject, 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 and cross a line and have that be the unforgivable sin. I also think the unforgivable sin sin is talked about in the book of Hebrews. There are six warnings there. A couple of those warnings are talking about the unforgivable sin. So you would have to be like the scribes and Pharisees, where you have a lot of information and a lot of evidence. Think of all the things they saw, the miracles they saw. And then they took the miracle and they put it over to Satan. And I don't know that that was the act of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but it was just their... Outright rejection of the miracles that they saw and the willingness to be able to put them to something else that finally they'd crossed the line and it was too much. And so, seeing they would see but not believe, even though they would see. So, are there people today that have a lot of knowledge, that see a lot of miracles, that reject Jesus anyway? That would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's the passage in Hebrews, which I talked about earlier, that says, once you've tasted the heavenly gift and seen all these things, it would seem like, again, a lot of information. And then it says, and then you fall away. It's impossible to renew you to repentance. It's not just impossible to renew you to salvation. It's impossible for you to want to change your mind. That's what repentance is. I want to change. I don't want to be this way. I want to be a new, I wanna be the person God wants me to be. That's repentance. So when I was a youth pastor, A girl came up to me, tears in her eyes, Bible open to that passage. Hebrews six says that that I think I've done this, that it's impossible for me to come to repentance. And I said, do you want to repent? She says, oh, yes. I said, do you want to walk with Christ? Yes. Do you want to change? Yes. Then you have not committed it because it says it's impossible to bring you to repentance. What you're telling me is that you are at repentance right now because you want to change. You don't want to perish. You want to trust God. And listen, fear is an okay reason to come to Christ and give your life to him. If um, if, you, if you are in a plane and the plane starts to go down and you have the chance to get a parachute out of fear of crashing into the ground, then you grab that parachute, that's an okay motivation. And the fear of God is an okay motivation. But there is a point where you could get so much information. I believe it would be rare. I, the Bible doesn't talk about it very much, But that would be what the unforgivable sin is, Debbie. And I also have two videos on this, a full-length teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and a shorter hot topic. Maybe, Keith, you could get those and put them in the description. And um, that way, Debbie or whoever is interested in looking into them more or into the um, comment section, maybe they'd be able to get it. If you just go to um, our YouTube page, type in blasphemy of the Spirit, I think there's at least two videos that'll come up, maybe even more than that. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that, Debbie. Uh, sh- uh, we have a question from uh, Shannon. Shannon says, this is actually from last week's teaching. Thank you. But it's confusing to say, we know our loved ones are with Jesus when they die. But in the rapture, those who are fallen asleep will be caught up first. Can you explain the difference, please? Yes, I would love to. So let me go ahead and pull up the passage here in first thessalonians chapter 5 13 through 18 and i want to read this to you uh, we may read the one out of first corinthians as well uh, but this one will help us to really understand what's going on um and let's see first thessalonians chapter 5 verses 13. all right let's see i need to go to first thessalonians chapter 4 not chapter five, verse 13. There we go. All right, so I'm gonna put this up on the screen for you. Thank you, Shannon, for your question. And um, so this is the quintessential passage on the rapture of the church. There are other passages that talk about it, but this is the one that you go to that gives you the details for this event, which is a private event where you meet Christ in the sky, unlike his return where it is very public and you meet him and he comes to the ground, then the angels gathered out to send to gather together Israel and the tribulation saints and bring them back on earth. And in that event, after the return of Christ, there is no resurrection, but there is a resurrection here. So let me bring this up on screen for you. So um, this is uh, the comfort of Christ's coming, okay? But I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. And by falling asleep, he means die, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So they were thinking somehow that when their when their family or friends had died and they were facing persecution in Thessalonica, that they had somehow missed out and they weren't going to be able to experience the return. We don't know exactly what they thought, but he says you're 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 going to mourn like those who have no hope. And that's pretty bad if you think that they're not going to be in heaven. So he says in verse 15 for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again and it's that died and rose again. That's the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, uh, I deliver to you what I received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and rose from the dead, according to the scriptures and you received it, believed it and stood in it. So this is the gospel if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that's the key, we we that but the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, Paul had said to be absent from this body is to be present with Christ in Philippians. So at the moment you die here, you are present with God, but that's your spirit. And others have taken advantage of the word sleep here, Paul uses the word sleep to talk about the death of a Christian, not because their soul sleep never does the Bible teach that when we die, we just pass out and we wake up all at the same time. We're like, Hey, hi, how long have you been here? I just got here. Me too. But you were dead 2000 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's weird. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's soul sleep and it's just not there. Uh, But what it teaches is for Christians, when we die here, it's like we go to sleep because we will awake again and we awake in his presence and will be reunited with our bodies. So all of the, the Christians that have died in Christ, so he's gonna bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So those who are have died in Christ and their spirits are with Jesus, he will bring the spirits back with them, but they don't have their bodies yet. Their bodies are still here. It goes on to say in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It's a pretty amazing event. God himself shouts the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be raised to meet their spirits in the air. That's the resurrection. So he brings with him those who are sleeping, those who have died, and their bodies meet him in the air, so now they have their glorified bodies, like Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, had a glorified, incorruptible, immortal body, so we will have the same body, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then it says, the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. So then we who are alive and remain, if that's us, We will be caught up in our bodies and our bodies will be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. Let me show you this other passage now that we've talked about that. Let me show you this one over here in 1 Corinthians 15. This whole chapter is on the resurrection. There were people who were believing that there was not a resurrection. And and so Paul writes about that. And you can read all of 1 Corinthians 15 that's talking about a resurrection. And the rapture of the church is only a smaller part of a larger event called the resurrection. It's just what do you do with those people who are alive and remain? You're gonna catch them up and change them. When you realize it's part of the resurrection, you realize it's not so strange sounding and that all Christians believe in a resurrection. Being caught up and changed is just a part of that resurrection. And so Paul talks about this mystery again of those alive being changed In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, there was a trumpet there as well. Here it's identified as the last trumpet. This doesn't mean the seventh trumpet of Revelation. That's not the last trumpet ever. That's the last in a series of trumpets. Revelation hadn't been written yet when this book was written. Paul's not referring to the seventh trumpet. So when you say to me, well, it's the seventh trumpet, it's not before the tribulation. There's a lot more trumpets. So there needs to be just a little bit more, better scholarship when it comes to the trumpets. Um, it says, in a moment and twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. There's the dead being raised first, okay, and we shall be changed. So we follow the dead being raised. We shall be changed, for this corruption was put on in corruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when corruption has been, has put on uh, incorruption and mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord, our our, through Jesus, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we understand, that death is is gonna be at the resurrection of the saints, of, of those in Christ in the church. That's when death loses its power and victory, and it's swallowed up at that point, at this event that is called the rapture. But the rapture is not as strange as what people try to make it out to be, or as odd as far as the teaching goes. I understand, if you just talk about every Christian everywhere is gonna be just disappear, but there's a resurrection as well. And it's right before it's during the last days where things are getting birth pains are increasing and things are getting crazier and crazier. I mean, look at the days that we are living in. They are now talking about aliens existing, not only UFOs being true, but these being some other kind of existence. That's the world we're living in. That would have been scoffed at and laughed at a decade ago. But today, the stage is being set for the supernatural, but the supernatural they're laying out is the the supernatural they're laying out is is UFOs, aliens. So um, that's that passage, Shannon. Let me just read your question, make sure I got it all. This is actually from last week's teaching, uh, but it's confusing to say how our loved ones are with Jesus when they die, but in the rapture, those who have fallen asleep will be caught up first. So again, he brings their spirits with him and they're falling asleep in Christ and they're with him. The moment we die, we are in the presence of God, then they will be reunited with their bodies in the resurrection that happens right before the smaller part of the resurrection, which is the rapture, which the rapture is a resurrection. All right, Shannon, thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. And um, good for me just to be able to get an opportunity to go ahead and clarify that. All right, so we have a question from Rod. Rod says, question, when the bible speaks of little gods isn't it the same as demons um it de- it depends on which passage you're talking about rod uh the there are some passages in the old testament that talk about demons being behind the powers of false teachers and if i i'm trying to think of the exact i spent some time on this just a couple of weeks ago I'm trying to remember the exact passages in the Old Testament, I can't remember them. And I don't know if I made a note about it. I don't think I did. Um, I should, when I'm doing these studies, I'm looking at these passages, I should just make notes on my phone so I can pull them back up when they're brought up here. So yes, there are times, and Satan is referred to as the God of this earth. That's in the New Testament, in the Greek. In the Old Testament, there's a connection between the false gods and that the power behind them is demonic. But, In Psalms 82, I believe he's talking about judges who are judging falsely. They are sitting in the place of judgment. God is the ultimate judge, and so he calls them Elohim, gods with a small g. That's why I think he says that. And that's why Jesus talking to some of these judges in the Sanhedrin brings up this whole thing about gods that just brings confusion into them when they're the ones who are being judged by it. And um, as I said, Samuel in, I'm, I believe it's First Samuel, when he's called up by the Witch of Endor, which sounds like something out of Star Wars, that it, uh, the spirit coming up is referred to as an Elohim. And so that's why those who believe in the heavenly council wanna try to say that we're making a mistake in in saying Elohim is the name of God giving it as a name of God, that they would want to say that God is the supreme Elohim. I don't know any place in the Bible that tries to make a distinction with that. Uh, Maybe they would say that the Hebrew makes that clear. And since we're not reading in Hebrew, but in English, and we're just used to calling Yahweh God, that we confuse it with Elohim. Which again, El is God and Eam being the plural. Um so there's different places where Elohim is used in different ways. Sometimes, yes, to refer to demons, sometimes to refer to angels, sometimes even even to refer to a man who's in a spirit form, and that is that is Samuel. Personally, and you probably got it when I was talking about the heavenly council, I think they've taken it too far. I don't think the heavenly council is what a lot of people make it out to be. I think that God is God is the ruler. Of, of the universe. And he was going to have Adam and Eve have dominion over the earth. And there may be some way in which angels share an authority. Our spiritual beings share an authority with them in heaven, which would be angels. Uh, but I don't know that we get that really clear. All right. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate it and good to see you, by the way. We have another question from Catherine. Um, Catherine, she wants to talk about toxic relationships. Is it okay to pray against toxic relationships that our kids are in as parents? Yes, Kimberly. I think it's okay to pray about toxic relationships um, that our kids are in as parents. Um, there are there are certain relationships that can be really bad for your kids and to get them away from them or for, ask God for help to get them away from them would be very important. And I do think, you know, um, I believe it's a passage, isn't it? Um, That, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. Is that a saying or is that a scripture? Huh, it's funny that I get to the point where I, yeah, where you can't remember. Uh, But I think that the idea can be taught in scripture, that the people that we end up hanging around with can really cause problems for us. And um, even as an adult, there are certain people that I want to, as a pastor, that I want to limit my interaction with because they're what I would call toxic. They're, they're bringing me down, man. And so I want to limit that with them. So yes, I think we should be praying for our kids. There are relationships that are bad for them. And as parents, we should be praying. Um, but also, don't forget to pray for those kids that you're seeing as toxic. Catherine, it's really easy for us to see them as being the enemy when the enemy is Satan, the enemy is the enemy. And pray that they would come to Christ. Pray they'd be straightened out. Pray that they'd, they that God would speak to them, that they would be changed, because they need help as well. I know we're thinking about our kids, but make sure that you don't end up hating the kids that are causing the toxic relationship. When someone attacks our kids, even then uh, we can you know we can really easily see. Uh, we we we, we want to defend them, and we can really end up attacking someone, and we don't want to attack them. We want to pray that our kids would get away from this toxic relationship. And um, I don't have any problem, by the way, for those of you who are writing emails or comments right now, um, that toxic is I think toxic is a good word to use, uh, even though it may be a bit of a of a psychology word. I think it's a it's a good word to use. And we understand what's being said when someone talks about a toxic relationship. All right. So thank you. You can tell that, you know, you're getting, starting to get comments on, on things like that and you just go, all right. Um, so we have another question from Kimberly and Kimberly says, question, Luke 21:36. Why would Jesus say, pray that you may be counted worthy to escape when he, when he knows none of us? Why would he say, pray that you'd be counted worthy to escape when he knows of us, when he knows none of us? Um, so I don't get your question, Kimberly. I'm sorry, um, let me just read it one more time. You know, when I don't get the question, sometimes I think people are screaming at the screen trying to tell me this is what she means. Um, why would Jesus say, pray that you would be counterworthy worthy to escape when he knows none of us? All right, I'm gonna take a stab at this um, of what you might be saying so Jesus tells us to pray that we be counted worthy to escape when He knows none of us. Uh, I'm sorry, Kimberly. Can you rewrite your question? I'll I'll take a look at it as the um, as it moves on here. I'm not exactly sure what you're trying to say, and I can't figure it out. Um, that you may be counted worthy when He when He knows us, maybe when He knows none of us. I'm sorry, Kimberly, I just don't get what the what the question is. All right. Rather than taking a stab at it, spending all this time talking about what you're not talking about, um, why don't you go ahead and rewrite in the question? I'll go to the end here in a few minutes to take a look and see if I can find it. Um, but Jesus does tell us after he talks about the tribulation period, that time that is coming upon the earth, that is worse than anything that this earth will ever go, earth will ever go through that we should pray to be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. That would be that we would pray, Lord, help me to walk right, help me to love you. Um, When maybe you're asking a question about salvation or partial, what some would call a partial rapture. Um, The way you are counted worthy is that you have a true relationship with him. And there are some people who think they are saved when they are not saved. And so when you're praying to be counted worthy, you're praying that you'd have that right relationship with God, that you that you would really be saved. And um you and that is a prayer to escape the tribulation period and there's no way around context there. People like to try to say that that's more of a nebulous statement for Jesus, but Jesus is talking about the tribulation period and you cannot divorce a passage from their um from their context. Thank you Keith for putting up uh the uh the the videos. Uh, we have a hot topic, Unforgivable. What's the unforgivable sin? And another one, Hebrews six, four through six. And he's put the links up there for you. So you can go ahead and take a look at those on um, on Facebook. All right. So let's see. Kimberly asked another question here. Um, Let's see. All right. So uh, follow up on the seven spirits. So let's go ahead and take this Kimberly. Follow up. Do you uh, do uh, do you do the seven? Do the seven uh, spirits describe in Isaiah? Could you be the character of the Holy Spirit? Sorry if you've already spoke on this. Um, I'm not sure what your question is again, Kimberly. Sorry. Um, yeah, and I did talk about that in the very beginning, so you may want to go back and listen to it. That the seven spirits I don't believe are the heavenly council that some like to bring up and talk about i think the heavenly council is a bit overblown i'm not saying it doesn't exist uh i just think the power that they have or how often they might meet or all of that is overblown a lot all right so um thank you very much kimberly i also tried to answer your last question and didn't get it um all right so um, let me just go ahead take a look here for another question if you're visiting here with us uh, for the first time really glad you're here Hope that the Lord blesses you by the time uh, that you are spending with us here today. If you have a question, then write the word question out. Then go ahead and and, and reread the question a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense, and um, go ahead and put the and you know put it in the comment section below. I'm going to go ahead and take a look at a question that I have prepared here, and I let's see. Um, the whole truth. Um, oh, that one we've already done. Let me see. Um, uh, can you explain the difference between the last days and the latter years? That one we've already done. I need to come back and update these. Does that, uh, that one we've already done. Let's go to the third question here. Um, is, uh, is, if Jesus is God, why did he not know when he would return? All right, so this kind of fits into some of the things that we're talking about. So Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And I don't think he's talking about literally knowing the day or the hour. This is what people have turned it into. This is a saying. I think no one knows the day or the hour because Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore be ready. Cause you don't know when the, de- when the father's going to return or when the son's going to return when I'm going to return the whole point of not knowing the day or the hour is that you have to be ready all of the time. If it was two days in other words if he's going to come back in september during the feast of the trumpets that's a two-day event so you don't know the day or the hour that means i don't got to worry about having my life right in december or january or february but every september i better be pulling it together but jesus said it doesn't come upon us like a thief because we know that no one knows the day or the hour and it's just going to happen and so when jesus said the son of man doesn't know the time he was talking about in his human form as a baby when jesus was born put in that manger he didn't say mom dad mary joseph just want to let you know i'm god i'm here i'll handle things he had to learn how to talk he had to learn who he was he had to grow in an understanding and wisdom as it says in the book of luke and so there were things he didn't know here i believe he knows in heaven now but he didn't then but the point was the angels don't know i don't know only the father knows and if that's the case, then none of us know. And uh, and and that's why he has the emphasis of why he doesn't know. All right. So um just take a look back here again. Uh, and I was hoping that Kimberly had restated her question. Um, and I did answer one from you, Kimberly, but there was the question about um praying about asking, um, praying to escape the, um, all the events that are going to come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Why would we pray that if God knows us? And maybe that's what you were asking. And I'll, I'll go ahead and um, try to take a, a, a stab at that. Ah, sorry about that, Andre. Um, you know, they're coming in from different places. So Andre says, you know, um, um, hey, pastor, skip me 13 weeks in a row, but 14th, he finally answered one of my questions. So what I think happens is, is that when they they come in from YouTube or Facebook and they wanna hold, hold a place, so after I've answered the first couple questions, the question comes in, but the question was asked before, so it's up in a spot ahead, but it wasn't visible. And so sometimes I just need to go back to the top to see if there's a question there that I didn't answer. Um, so I'm going to just take a a stab at answering Kimberly's question as if she's saying, if God knows where we are, why does God say that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape? Because the Bible tells us that we can be self-deceived and sin is deceptive. And it's possible that I could think I'm okay, but I'm not. Jesus said, some are going to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? He's going to say, away from me. I never knew you. They thought they were saved, but they were not saved. They had not made a real, genuine commitment to Christ. And so we are to pray that we would counted worthy to escape by evaluating ourselves and whether we have a genuine, sincere faith. I often pray that we would serve God with sincerity and without hypocrisy. That was the problem with Judas. We're going to be talking about him tonight in our service, that Judas was he didn't believe and he really didn't search himself. And so he might have thought that he was okay, even though he had all kinds of problems and pretended like he was okay. And there may be all kinds of people today doing the same thing. And when Jesus returns, they're going to be like, didn't weren't we used by you? I mean, think about Judas, Judas did miracles. He prayed for people and they were healed. He cast out demons because that was given to the apostles, that power. But he never really believed. And so it's possible that people could do miraculous things for God and then not believe. So we are to be pray that we'd be counted worthy to be able to escape those things that we really are saved, that we really do know him. I think that's what um, you're saying there, Kimberly. If not, please feel free uh, to look at that. All right. So um, we have a question here from John uh, and thanks, uh, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Um, Question are some things like smoking or occasional drinking or gambling, a sin, therefore worthy of hell. Thank you. And may God bless you, Pastor Robert. All right, John P. Thank you for your question. Um, Yeah, the Bible never says don't roll up tobacco into a paper, light it on fire and suck it into your lungs. And that doesn't mean God wants you to. But I think that God cares about other things a lot more than that. I think he cares more about the way you're treating your wife or the people around you. God talks about walking in love towards one another. And when, when, when someone gets saved, and I was just thinking about this the other day, when someone gives their life to Christ, there's a lot of changes that are gonna come their way. A lot of, there's gonna be a lot of slow changes and a lot of growing. And sometimes it takes a while before they look at it and go, this behavior needs to change. Smoking is an easy one for us because our culture has looked down upon it. Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars, and uh, he's famous for saying, smoking in excess would be sin. And somebody asked him, Well, what is smoking in excess? And he said, when you have a cigar in each hand. So, yeah, we would like to, it's like a cultural thing that we would say smoking is a sin, when we know it's not good for you. But smoking is a sin, occasional drinking, the Bible never condemns it. And I realize again, this is a cultural thing, especially for the United States. Um, The Bible Condem- con- condemns drunkenness, and I think that's really important for us to understand. Uh, gambling, if someone is gambling, uh, there seems to be a lot of gambling going on. Somebody goes and buys a lottery ticket, and um, a scratcher, and they scratch it and throw it away. They can afford it it's something that they do as a form of entertainment. Certainly not, they're not gonna go to hell for that, all right? But if someone is so caught up in gambling, that, it, that they're gambling the rent money and it's destroying them and that does happen, then that obviously is a problem. So my answer to these is no, none of these sins are, none of these things are worthy of hell. And maybe they are worthy of hell, but Jesus has, has saved us, depending on how far they're taken, right? Because if you are living for smoking, drinking, or gambling, then that would be a sin, all right? So thank you, John P. I appreciate that. Uh, I saw a question came in here from uh, Jari, that's a follow-up. Jari says, our question, Jari says, uh, follow-up, could there be more members of the Trinity, seven spirits of God? Thanks, I have heard it's possible that there are members that we don't know about, but will in heaven. Uh, I don't think so. I don't believe so. I think that the Bible clearly teaches the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit as being God. The Bible attributes creation to the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit; salvation to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit; the resurrection to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but not to anyone else. And I think that this is a that this kind of a teaching would be a scary teaching for for cults or a false teaching that someone would try to grab onto it and teach that there are other members of the Trinity. It would be something jarring that I would say just as far away from as uh, you possibly can. All right. So let me, um, I'm just going to go back up to the top here of the comment section and see if there's anything that did come in that I didn't answer. Just because every once in a while I get that we've been skipping over people. And I don't know if that is an issue again of where they come in from, um, YouTube or from Facebook. All right. Doesn't look like it. Looks like we've got them all. All right, so uh, we have a service tonight, six o'clock, about an hour from now, it'll start, and it is on Judas. And the, the title of the message is, What was Judas thinking? And we're gonna look at the biblical passages that talk about Judas and what was going on, that he would be such a traitor, such a, and, and that, he would, that he would betray Jesus, and that he would have such an incredible lack of loyalty towards him. And then we want to evaluate us and where we are. And is it possible that we could have some of those same features that he had in his life that the Bible tells us he had, that we could end up not really serving Christ, which we would have to say that about Judas, he was the son of perdition, he did not really serve Christ. And so that will be in about an hour from now. And I look forward to being able to cover that with you. Uh, yeah, it's been good being with you guys. Uh, we will gather together again on Saturday and we will answer questions in the lens of scripture. Uh, really do appreciate you stay close to Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you, um, dive into God's word, learn as much as you possibly can learn more and more about God and his word really grow and mature. This is going to get spiritually mature. This is going to give you the ability to be able to speak into people's lives, give them wisdom and really help them. All right. So love you guys. Uh, we'll see you on on. I guess this is Saturday, isn't it? So we'll see you on Wednesday. Wednesday night will be in the Book of Revelation. We'll be starting to look at the vision of the Son of Man in Chapter one, uh, the Almighty, which is Jesus. And uh, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus. Thanks, Keith, for being here as uh, and, and moderating this. And uh, we will see you guys uh, later on. I'm out.